When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The hopes of reconciliation, which were fondly entertained by multitudes of honest and well-meaning, though weak and mistaken people, have been gradually and at last totally extinguished. Time has been given for the whole people maturely to consider the great question of independence and to ripen their judgments, dissipate their fears, and allure their hopes by discussing it in newspapers and pamphlets, by debating it in assemblies, conventions, committees of safety and inspection, in town and county meetings, as well as in private conversations, so that the whole people in every colony of the Thirteen have now adopted it as their own act. This will cement the Union and avoid those heats and perhaps convulsions which might have been occasioned by such a declaration six months ago. But the day is past. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epica in the history of America. For all of his many talents, timing was something that John Adams seemed to struggle with time and again throughout his career, as this letter to his wife Abigail proves. After the Second Continental Congress resolved on July 2nd to declare independence, John wrote that the day would be, quote, celebrated by succeeding generations as the Great Anniversary Festival. It ought to be commemorated as the Day of Deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. However, he thought that the independence resolution on the 2nd, rather than the adoption of the Declaration of Independence on the 4th, would be what future generations celebrated. His personal story, however, was made even more fascinating by the fact that he was two days off, as we'll see when we get 50 years down the road in Adams's history. That day, dear friends, is far ahead of us. So as we back up a bit, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get started, a couple of bits of housekeeping. First, thanks to my husband, Alex Lawson, for giving voice to Mr. Adams for this week's episode. I'm always on the lookout for folks to provide audio for the intro quote. So if you'd like to contribute your voice, please let me know via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can reach out via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Second, I have some good news and some not so good news. With the former first, now that everything is booked, I can announce that I will be traveling to New York City in less than a week and to France in mid-September. I have tons of presidential history and American history sites in both destinations that I plan on trying to see and will be sharing that with all of you through my social media, Facebook, Twitter, and I'm now on Instagram as Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word. Connect with me on any of those sources and see what I'm able to share on my travels. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is that travel takes time. Thus, I'm anticipating that the next episode will need to be pushed back one week to launch on August 19th. However, I'd rather give myself extra time to be able to put out the best episode that I can for you out of respect of the time you invest into this podcast. I will keep you informed as to whether there are any delays in episode releases in September, but I'm hoping that after episode 2.3, we'll be back to the usual new episode every two weeks schedule. Speaking of... We'll get to the beginning of the Adams presidency in the next episode, episode 2.3. Then, in the following episode, we're going to do some globe trekking of our own to see how things are going in the Caribbean and in Europe to lay the groundwork for moving forward in examining a presidency with a heavy emphasis on foreign affairs. Thus, in summation, 
Connect on social media so that I can share some presidential history from New York in a week. Then on August 19th, look for the next episode, Start the Adams Presidency. Then another one two weeks later, looking at foreign affairs. Sound good? Good. Then let's get going with Adams' life prior to the presidency. In our last episode, we left Adams on his 37th birthday after the family's move back to Boston, feeling anxious about a lingering sense of immaturity in himself, despite being in the declining years of his life. Speaking as someone who's going to be reaching that age before too long, I certainly hope Mr. Adams is wrong in the whole, it's all downhill after 37 thing. As it turned out, Adams' career was just about to hit its stride. In 1773, Adams decided to get back into politics and stood again for election to the Massachusetts Legislative Assembly. After winning the seat, he was chosen by the Assembly to serve on the Governor's Council at a time when relations between the Royal Governor and the Assembly were worse than ever. John had resolved to, quote, act a fearless, intrepid, undaunted part in all hazards in this new role, but it was not to be. The Governor, Thomas Hutchinson, rejected Adams' appointment due to, quote, the very conspicuous part Mr. Adams had taken in opposition. John Adams was being established firmly on the side of those that would come to call themselves patriots at a time when the long-simmering tensions boiled over briefly in what would come to be known as the Boston Tea Party in December 1773. Again, John's sense of timing failed him, as he wrote to James Warren on April 9, 1774, that, quote, for my own part, I'm of the same opinion that I've been for many years, that there is not spirit enough on either side to bring the question to a complete decision, and that we shall oscillate like a pendulum and fluctuate like the ocean for many years to come and never obtain a complete redress of American grievances, nor submit to an absolute establishment of parliamentary authority. Within a month, though, the news came that the British government was closing the port of Boston in retaliation for the Boston Tea Party. Soon after, the Massachusetts legislature met and voted to issue a call for a Continental Congress composed of representatives from the various colonies to meet in Philadelphia in September to develop, quote, a plan for a more lasting accommodation with Great Britain. One of the five representatives that the legislature chose to send was none other than John Adams. While taking his appointment as an honor, John also had doubts about his adequacy for the post. He wrote to James Warren, who had voted in the legislature for Adams' appointment on June 25th, that, quote, I suppose you sent me there to school. I thank you for thanking me an apt scholar are capable of learning. For my own part, I'm at a loss, totally at a loss what to do when we get there but I hope to be there taught. However, Adams also recognized the significance of the Congress. Quote, It is to be a school of political prophets, I suppose, a nursery of American statesmen. May it thrive and prosper and flourish, and from this fountain may there issue streams, which shall gladden all the cities and towns in North America forever. Not all of John's friends were supportive of his appointment, are of the Congress. Jonathan Sewell, a longtime friend and fellow Harvard graduate, who was then serving as the Colonial Attorney General, talked with John while the two were at Falmouth, now Portland, Maine, for a court session, and begged John not to attend the Congress, as he felt that any attempt to oppose the British government was doomed to failure. John, however, responded that, quote, sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish, I am with my country. You may depend upon it. Thus, when the First Continental Congress assembled in September 1774, John Adams was among their number. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before he left for Philadelphia, though, the Adamses would decide that Boston was too dangerous of a place for the family to be at present. 
So Abigail would move with the children back to their home in Braintree, and John would be able to spend three weeks with them before heading off to take his seat in the Congress. Thus, he was able to fully turn his critical eye on this assemblage that was unlike any other in the history of the British North American colonies. The only colony along what we now call the Eastern Seaboard not sending delegates would be Georgia, with around a third of the delegates being lawyers, while many others who were not lawyers were planners from the South. As noted by Furling, quote, Adams was delighted to discover the existence of a broad consensus on the rights of Americans. But he also found that when the group considered the best ways of standing up to Britain, perilously close to half the congressmen were extremely cautious. These men would constitute a conservative faction, delegates drawn principally from the middle colonies. Of course, Adams found that many delegates pleased him, especially some of the planners, men whom he judged to be generally solid, firm, judicious types. John would note as the month went on that, quote, business, ceremony, visits, and a thousand etceteras take up my time so entirely that I can scarce find half enough for sleep. For nearly two months, Adams and his fellow delegates would work before finally adjourning on October 26th after having implemented a boycott against British goods, as well as drafted a declaration of rights and grievances. Again, from Furling, quote, Adams' confidence in his abilities steadily grew during these weeks. In time, Adams came to see through some of the delegates, finding that beneath the facades of guileful oratory and polished demeanors, many were quite superficial. He discovered, too, that he was the equal in learning and in preparation of the best of his colleagues. It was also during this time that Adams met and was captivated by a fellow delegate hailing from the state of Virginia namely, George Washington. He would remember the good impression made by Washington upon his return to Congress the next year after the news of Lexington and Concord made military confrontation more of a likelihood than ever before in order to address the issues between the colonies and Great Britain. While George Washington turned his attention to military matters, Adams turned to logistics. Part of the reason for his nomination of Washington to command an army that, at that point, was primarily composed of New Englanders, was in order to breach the gulf between North and South that he had already observed forming in Congress. As noted by Paige Smith, quote, John felt constantly the danger of a Southern and a Northern party. If such an alignment were imposed on the even more fundamental split between moderate and radical, Congress might become fragmented and impotent. In October, Adams was to play another key part in furthering the preparations for war when he served on a committee which recommended developing a naval force to attack British vessels off the coast as they already had reports of ships sailing, quote, from Canada loaded with arms and powder for the British in Boston. On November 28th, the Continental Congress would approve rules to govern the new Navy but would delay in actually putting these rules and the new naval force into effect. One key feature to note at this time in Adams's life is impatience at how slow Congress moved. For months, Congress debated what to do about trade and which country the U.S. should reach out to in order to develop trade relations, and further, which one would be most likely to risk a confrontation with the British, who would surely seek to prevent such trade. Up until this point, the colonies had only legally traded with Britain, though of course other trade did take place under the nose of British authorities. Now though, with trade with Britain out of the question, they would need to seek new trading partners. After listening to the debate back and forth, Adams outlined his thoughts on the matter in a letter to his friend James Warren on October 7, 1775. The answer to him was quite simple. Instead of picking and choosing with whom to trade, why not just open the door to everyone? A free trade policy would allow merchants and ship owners to make their own choices rather than relying on negotiations with one government or another, which were likely to be lengthy and complicated. As Adams told Warren, quote, God helps those who help themselves. And it has ever appeared to me since this unhappy dispute began that we had no friend upon earth to depend on but the resources of our own country and the good sense and great virtues of our people. We shall finally be obliged to depend upon ourselves. 
Being self-sufficient meant not relying on foreign governments, but trusting that the raw materials available along the eastern seaboard and the promise of fortunes to be made would lure enough merchants to sustain the American economy during the war. He would find opposition, though, coming from moderates and would fret with Warren later in the month over the consequences of the delay. On October 19, he would write three letters to Warren, one in which he complained about the high cost of maintaining armies and his concern that there would not be money available in the Treasury to reimburse Massachusetts for its expenses if the state government did not promptly send its accounts to Philadelphia. In another, he asked Warren's thoughts on an American Navy, acknowledging that, while it would be expensive, quote, the expense might be borne, and perhaps the profits and benefits to be obtained by it would be a compensation. A naval force might be created, which would do something. In the third letter, he wrote to Warren in a Socratic dialogue with himself that goes as follows, quote, Shall we hush the trade of the whole continent and not permit a vessel to go out of our harbors except from one colony to another? How long will or can our people bear this? I say they can bear it forever. If Parliament should build a wall of brass at low watermark, we might live and be happy. We must change our habits, our prejudices, our palates, our taste in dress, furniture, equipage, architecture, etc. But we can live and be happy. But the question is whether our people have virtue enough to be mere husbandmen, mechanics, and soldiers. That they have not virtue enough to bear it always, I take for granted. How long, then, will their virtue last? While I won't go through Adams's entire tenure in the Continental Congress with you, as that is beyond the scope of this episode, I thought that these three letters in a single day highlight some key aspects of Adams for us to keep in mind as we get into his presidency. I'm going to go out on a limb here and give you my humble impressions, so grains of salt at the ready. While Washington seemed to require others to provide him with perspective and differing viewpoints, Adams went through the various arguments and approaches to issues in his own mind, occasionally using others as a sounding board, but by and large making his own determinations after examining and weighing the options for himself. That, in my view of Adams, is key to understanding how his presidency would differ from Washington's. Also, yet again, we see this idea of virtue and a shift to more self-sufficiency that Adams expressed through Humphrey Plowjogger during the debate over the Stamp Act. These concepts of virtue and independence are at the core of what makes up John Adams, in my humble opinion. Before we move on, I should note one other event that will help us to understand Adams. The fall of 1775, in addition to bringing work for the delegates of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, also brought, quote, smallpox and a devastating form of dysentery to Braintree, and the Adams household was not spared. As described by Adams biographer Paige Smith, quote, Abigail was so hard hit by dysentery that she could barely stand. Tommy, desperately ill, wanted only his mother to nurse him, and Abigail dragged herself to his bed to give him what comfort she could. To add insult to injury, Abigail's mother fell ill. So after she regained her strength, she made the trek back and forth between Braintree and Weymouth, tending to both her mother and the Adams's maid, Patty, who had also fallen ill. Unfortunately, her mother would not survive, and the loss would be devastating to Abigail, especially considering that she was bearing the brunt of these tragic circumstances alone, with John away in Philadelphia. Again, as described by Smith, quote, the death of his mother-in-law and Abigail's distress were seldom out of Adams's mind. They provided a somber and depressing background for his daily concern with the fate of his colony and country. We've already seen John's absence during the birth of his children, but now John was missing when his wife was coping with the death of a loved one. Even when he had been in Massachusetts for three weeks in late summer 1775, John had spent most of his time away from Abigail and the children, attending to business with the Massachusetts Provincial Congress in Watertown before returning to Philadelphia. Absence and distance, while providing future historians with a wealth of correspondence between the two, would unfortunately be a constant in the relationship of John and Abigail Adams for many years of their marriage. 
There is one other character that we must bring into the mix before we can move on, as he will play a large role in Adams' life and presidency. In the summer of 1775, while serving in the Continental Congress, John Adams would meet a new delegate from the colony of Virginia, a fellow lawyer in his early 30s who, like Adams, had served in his colonial legislature prior to being chosen to represent Virginia in Congress. This was none other than Thomas Jefferson. As described by Lester Capone, quote, The contrast between the tall, angular Jefferson and the chubby, rotund Adams must have been striking whenever they were seen together. Even to a casual acquaintance, the reserve of the Virginian undoubtedly accentuated the air of cordiality of the New Englander. As Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone noted, quote, Jefferson was constant in attendance of the Continental Congress, though he was a silent member in debate. On committees and in conversation, however, he was prompt, frank, explicit, and decisive. John Adams believed that not even Samuel Adams was more so, and said that the young Virginian soon seized upon his heart. Thus, he dated the beginning of an historic friendship. Both men increasingly felt as 1775 gave way to 1776 that the time for reconciliation with Britain was over, and that the colonies would need to forge a new path ahead. When Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, went public in January 1776, it spurred growing calls for liberty and independence, which will be heard and echoed in the halls of Congress that spring. By early May, Abigail was writing to John from Braintree that, quote, a government of more stability is much wanted in this colony, and they are ready to receive it from the hands of the Congress. A people may let a king fall, yet still remain a people. But if a king let his people slip from him, he is no longer a king. And as this is most certainly our case, why not proclaim to the world in decisive terms your own importance? The delegates from the South and New England were ready to make that move, but the delay came from delegates from the middle colonies, in particular Pennsylvania, that were more reluctant to make a full break from Britain. Further, the more conservative delegates in Congress were backed by the Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly, which would not instruct its delegates to vote for independence, and of which the radical faction could not gain control over in the existing governmental structure. John Adams would work over the spring to introduce resolutions that would help to empower radicals in Pennsylvania to gain the upper hand on those more inclined to reconciliation. On May 15th, he was able to secure the passage of a resolution calling on the various colonies to develop new governments to displace the previous colonial governments, including, and most especially, the Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly. By May 20th, the radicals had organized a rally of 4,000 in Pennsylvania that called for a provincial convention to draft a new constitution. John wrote to James Warren of his role in passing, quote, the most important resolution that ever was taken in America. This resolution, however, would ultimately pale in comparison in terms of historic significance to one offered the next month by Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, declaring the colonies to be, quote, free and independent states, a resolution that Adams would second. After a bitter debate, Congress decided to postpone the discussion of independence until July 1st and to appoint a committee to prepare a Declaration of Independence. Adams would find himself appointed to the committee along with the esteemed Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Robert Livingston of New York, and his friend Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. It was during this time that he wrote back to Massachusetts that, quote, all ideas of reconciliation or accommodation seem to be gone with the years before the flood. Now, I'm not going to talk much about the Declaration, as Jefferson played a more prominent role in its drafting and, spoiler alert, will become president after Adams. It should be noted, however, that the role of primary drafter of the Declaration was first offered to John, who declined. As noted by Furling, quote, no one, least of all Adams, imagined the immortality that such an act would bring. But even if he had wished to work on it, at the time he was already swamped with work on other committees, including three more that he was named to on the same week that he was named to the committee to draft the declaration. Thus, the honor went to his friend Jefferson. Though he wouldn't prepare the draft, 
Once it was approved by the committee and submitted to the full Congress, Adams would lend his voice in its support in an extemporaneous speech urging that the delegates vote for independence. I think we all know how that turned out, so let's move ahead. One of Adams' most strenuous duties during his tenure in the Continental Congress was serving as chairman of the Board of War, which Adams' biographer Paige Smith describes, quote, as a kind of de facto Secretary of War of the United Colonies. Not just the importance of the position and what it meant for the new nation's independence weighed on his mind, but it would occupy a good deal of his time as the board, quote, often met at six o'clock in the morning to deliberate until Congress assembled. Then after that body's rising, might reconvene until six or seven in the evening and, not infrequently, far into the night. He would be on the front lines of every complaint from the armed forces. Inadequate recruitment. More funds were needed. Medical supplies were required. One person had been unfairly promoted over another. Stricter discipline was needed. Ammunition was low. On and on it went. He would throw himself into the task, but would often be frustrated by the receipt of, quote, infrequent and inadequate reports from the Army. Vague sketches and imperfect hints, as he called them. Before long, though, Adams would be called to another task. After speaking so vigorously against the British, John would soon after the Declaration of Independence find himself face-to-face with one of their top commanders. After the defeat of the American army in the Battle of Long Island in August, Adams would be chosen by Congress, along with Benjamin Franklin and Edward Rutledge of South Carolina, to travel to New York to meet with Admiral Lord Richard Howe to determine whether he and his brother, General William Howe, commander-in-chief of the British Army in America, were empowered and willing to negotiate a peace treaty. They would soon learn that, though the Howes were eager to conclude a peace, they were only empowered to do so, quote, upon submission of the colonies. Naturally, these were unacceptable terms to the American delegation, and so the war would go on. John would have his hand in concluding the peace with Britain, but not just yet. His thoughts, however, were on establishing a peaceful relationship with another nation. At the same time that Jefferson was hard at work on the Declaration, Adams had been at work on what would later come to be known as the Model Treaty, which was a template that could be utilized for negotiations with other European powers, the chief among them of interest to the U.S. at that point being France. The Model Treaty had three main elements, an assurance of free trade, a guarantee that neutral nations will be able to trade with belligerents in normal goods, and the establishment of a list of 68 contraband items that would be excluded from the protections guaranteed to neutral trade at time of war. Adams would continue his work in Congress and with the Board of War even as the war dragged on and prospects grew ever bleak in the latter part of 1776 and through 1777. The end of 1777, however, would find Adams being given a new assignment. He left Congress for home in November, knowing that he was about to be named as a commissioner to France to join Benjamin Franklin and Charles Lee on their diplomatic mission to conclude a treaty of alliance. Official word would arrive in Braintree in mid-December, but it would not find John there. As noted by McCullough, quote, Adams was away at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, representing a client in what was to be his last appearance ever in a court as a private attorney. Instead, it was Abigail who opened the mail packet and discovered the new challenge before her husband and their family. To put it mildly, she was none too pleased and wrote as such to one of John's fellow congressional delegates from Massachusetts. Quote, Oh, sir, you who are possessed of sensibility and a tender heart, How could you contrive to rob me of all my happiness? Can I, sir, consent to be separated from him whom my heart esteems above all earthly things and for an unlimited time? My life will be one continued scene of anxiety and apprehension, and must I cheerfully comply with the demand of my country? However, she would comply and John would brave the crossing of the North Atlantic in winter, a perilous journey even in the best of conditions, and in the middle of a war was far from the best of conditions. John would not venture to Europe alone, though. While the idea of Abigail joining him was discussed, and she lobbied John hard for the opportunity, the decision was made for Abigail to remain with the children, while their oldest son, 
John Quincy Adams, then 10 years old and affectionately known within the family as Johnny, would accompany his father. The two set off aboard the frigate Boston in mid-February, and after a few tense encounters, including an intense storm and a naval engagement, arrived in Bordeaux on April 1, 1778. A week later, the Adamses would find themselves in Paris, though they found their welcome not quite as cordial as they might have hoped. Apparently, some Parisians at first thought that it was his cousin, Samuel Adams, who they referred to as Le Fameux Adams who would be joining the American Commission, and were disappointed to learn of the error and the coming of Le Moins Fameux Adams, or, en anglais, the less famous Adams. This would not stop John from doing what he did best, throwing himself into work. Now, at this point, I should remind you of what I said at the beginning of the last episode. This pre-presidency two-parter is not intended to be an exhaustive biography of Adams' life prior to the presidency. Thus, we are going to go more quickly through Adams' diplomatic work between 1778 and his appointment as the first U.S. minister to the Court of St. James in 1785. Don't get me wrong, this was an important part of Adams' life, but except for a couple of points which I will highlight, mostly it just serves to reinforce what we already know about Adams. He wasn't afraid to speak his mind or work hard, but at times his fervor could be off-putting and he was often frustrated when it took a while to accomplish goals. He was rather critical of his fellow commissioner, Ben Franklin, and he developed what might be described as a love-hate relationship with the French. While disapproving of some aspects of French culture, for example, quote, the forwardness of the women, he also grew to develop an appreciation for being in a cultural center such as Paris, where he could go to the plays, take up numerous newspapers, rub elbows with people from all walks of life, and he developed a fond affection for, quote, the female shopkeepers. His first mission to Europe, however, would be cut short in 1779 when news arrived that Franklin had been named as the sole U.S. minister to France and the three-man commission was dissolved. On the journey back to Massachusetts, Adams did what so many even nowadays have trouble with. He took a good, long look at himself and concluded that, quote, There is a feebleness and a languor in my nature. My mind and body both partake of this weakness. By my physical constitution, I am but an ordinary man. The times alone have destined me to fame, and even these have not been able to give me much. Yet some great events, some cutting expressions, some mean hypocrisies, have at times thrown this assemblage of sloth sleep, and littleness, into rage a little like a lion. Yet it is not like the lion. There is extravagance and distraction in it that still betrays the same weakness. Adams would take some time that year to draft the Massachusetts state constitution before receiving another commission from Congress to return to France to serve, quote, as minister plenipotentiary to negotiate treaties of peace and commerce with Great Britain. Unlike his first diplomatic mission, this one was completely unexpected, and the choice of Adams to serve in this role had been nearly unanimous. Elbridge Gerry, a congressional delegate from Massachusetts and a name that you might want to remember, hint, hint, wrote to Adams that, quote, Upon the whole, I'm of opinion that in the esteem of Congress, your character is as high as any gentleman's in America. Flattery will get you everywhere with John Adams. And thus, before the year was out, Adams and John Quincy were on a ship back to Europe. Once again, the question of whether Abigail should go was addressed. And again, the decision was reached for her to remain at Braintree. However, there would be one more joining them on this journey, John Quincy's younger brother, Charles. Paige Smith describes Charles as follows. Quote, if he lacked Johnny's remarkable precociousness, Charles made up for it by his charm. He was the handsomest of four handsome children, a boy full of natural grace of spirit, which endeared everyone to him and made him the pet of the family. For Adams, this mission was more to his liking, as he would be able to act more independently than he had as part of the commission. But the nature of his mission rankled the French foreign minister, the Comte de Vergin who really didn't care for Adams personally. Now, he felt that Adams would have a free hand to interfere in Vergennes' plans to use the conflict to weaken Britain and strengthen French trade in North America. 
Adams was under no illusions about Vergen's aims, asserting that, quote, he, Vergen, means to keep his hand under our chin to prevent us from drowning, but not to lift our heads out of the water. While waiting for an opportunity for peace with Britain, Adams traveled to the Dutch Republic in the summer of 1780 of his own volition to secure financial support for the United States. Negotiations, however, would drag on, frustrating Adams, but he would press on, first in his unofficial capacity, then as the official U.S. Minister to the Dutch Republic, as he was designated by Congress at his request. Unbeknownst to him, Benjamin Franklin had sent a letter to Congress expressing Vergen's disapproval of Adams and his mission, and Congress responded by revoking Adams's commission as sole negotiator of peace with Great Britain on June 15, 1871, and instead he would be one of a commission of five to negotiate peace, with the other four being Franklin, John Jay of New York, Henry Lawrence of South Carolina, and Adams's friend Jefferson, though Jefferson would ultimately delay his departure for Europe and finally found his way out of the appointment. Receiving this news in late August, and combined with the exhaustion from what had been to date over a year of fruitless exertions in his negotiations with the Dutch, John fell seriously ill to the point that he lost consciousness for a few days. Finally, in October, he started to recover so that he could resume his correspondence and his work. While John described it in letters as a quote-unquote nervous fever, David McCullough postulates that the ailment Adams suffered from at the time may have been either malaria or typhoid fever. To add credence to the theory that it was malaria was the fact that even a year and a half later, Adams would still be writing of experiencing occasional lingering symptoms from his ailment, which is not unheard of in cases of malaria. However, after this illness, Adams's prospects in Europe started brightening. First, news arrived in late November of the surrender of British General Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown. This gave Adams added ammunition to push for full Dutch recognition of American independence, and by March 28, 1782, he had achieved this goal. On June 11th, he concluded negotiations with three Amsterdam banking houses for a 5 million guilders, or $2 million, loan to the United States. A few months later, on October 8th, Adams signed a Treaty of Commerce with the Dutch Republic. However, this year of triumphs was only the start, as word arrived that a British emissary had finally been empowered to begin peace negotiations with the American Commission. Adams would arrive in Paris in late October, where he would learn from his fellow commissioner, John Jay, that Congress had instructed the commission, quote, to abide by the guidance of the French foreign ministry. If you've learned nothing else about John Adams yet, dear listener, then you should know that John Adams was not one to give up his independence of thought and action to any other authority. Thus, he wrote on October 31st to Chancellor Robert R. Livingston, then Secretary of Foreign Affairs under the Confederation government, that he and Jay had agreed, in Jay's words, quote, to be honest and grateful to our allies, but to think for ourselves. If they wanted someone to simply say yes to whatever the French negotiated with the British, they would have to send someone else. John Adams was there to negotiate for the best interests of the United States. Negotiations would carry on throughout the month of November, with the four commissioners finally signing an agreement that would come to be known as the Treaty of Paris on November 30th. Adams and the others left it to Franklin to break the news to Virgin that the U.S. had concluded a separate peace with Britain. And I'd like to imagine Adams snickering as Franklin left to tell the French foreign minister, and possibly wishing that he had a front row seat to see Virgin's face. The next couple of years would see a few key developments in Adams' life. First, Abigail and their daughter Nabby would finally join John and John Quincy in France in early August 1784. Charles had already returned to the U.S. in 1781, so it was just the two future presidents remaining upon the ladies' arrival. I'm planning a special episode on Abigail Adams, much like the one that we did on Martha Washington, so we'll return to Abigail and Abby's voyage across the Atlantic at that point. But suffice it to say that they were all overjoyed at the reunion. Around the same time, Thomas Jefferson, having received a new commission to Europe to negotiate, quote, treaties of amity and commerce with European nations, arrived in Paris with his daughter Martha, known to the family as Patsy. 
the Adamses and Jefferson would spend much time together and become quite close over the next nine months, with Jefferson being a frequent guest at the Adamses' lodgings at Auteuil. However, their time in France would not last forever. John had been lobbying for another position, that of the first U.S. minister to Great Britain, and in 1785, he would receive that posting. Now, one has to wonder why Adams would want to go to what would be arguably the toughest diplomatic post of the time, having to deal with the nation from which his own had so recently declared independence and with whom, up until recently, they had been at war. There are a couple of reasons that suggest themselves to me. First, Adams realized the importance of the mission. The United States desperately sought trade and commerce from other nations to help its economy and the national treasury to recover from the war. As Britain had by nature been their largest trading partner previously, the old business relationships there might be the easiest to rekindle. But at the time, the British still had a trade embargo on American goods. Adams's native New England was in particular hit hard by this embargo, so he would be eager to do what he could to tackle this issue head on. Indeed, the challenge that the mission presented was likely one aspect that attracted Adams. As we've seen previously, though he may be nervous about how he would perform, Adams ultimately did not shirk from challenges that others would see as near impossible. If he could conclude a commercial treaty with Britain, his fame would grow even larger than it already was, and who knows what that would mean for his future. This appointment, however, was not granted to him by a unanimous acclaim in Congress. As noted by Furling, quote, even Adams acknowledged that some of the opposition to his appointment was merited. His exacerbate manner had made enemies over the years. Many also detected his vain countenance, a quality that showed through in his letters to Congress. He would learn of this opposition from his friend Elbridge Jerry, and that it was due in large part to his vanity, to which Adams replied in a lengthy letter on May 2, 1785, that, quote, If at some times I have betrayed in word or writing such a sentiment, I have only to say an excuse for it, that I am not an hypocrite, nor a cunning man, nor at all times wise, and that although I may be more cautious for the future, I will never be so merely to obtain the reputation of a cunning politician, a character I neither admire nor esteem. No matter, though, with the support of the congressional members of New England, who felt one of their own the best to trust with the mission, Adams would receive the appointment, and on May 20, 1785, John, Abigail, and Nabby would depart from Auteuil for London for what Adams himself had described as his quote-unquote destiny. John Adams would be the first American official to be received at the Court of St. James by King George III since the Revolution, and the encounter has been portrayed numerous times on screen. One can only imagine the tension in the room as Adams appeared before the king. By Adams's report, at one point in the interview, the king remarked that, quote, There is an opinion among some people that you are not the most attached of all your countrymen to the manners of France. Adams replied, somewhat sheepishly, at having been called out by the British monarch, quote, I must avow to your majesty, I have no attachment but to my own country. To which King George quipped, quote, an honest man will never have any other. There is no questioning John Adams' attachment to his country, and it is likely that this attachment, as well as the love of his family, was what kept him going through the toughest days of his new assignment. Adams would find the British government immovable in negotiations, and as news arrived in London of the increasing dysfunction of the government under the Articles Confederation, the British were even less inclined to yield on any of the various diplomatic points that Adams presented. Further, the British people were condescending to the Adamses, with John being regularly attacked and ridiculed in the press, and with the wife of a member of Parliament when she called upon the Adamses at their lodgings in Grosvenor Square asking them, quote, but surely you prefer this country to America. This does not mean, however, that his time in London was without its use. As mentioned in episode 1.30, Adams and Jefferson would work from their respective posts to negotiate with the Barbary states for the safety of American ships in the Mediterranean. Though unsuccessful in their negotiations due to the lack of funds provided by Congress with which to pay tribute, these negotiations would provide both men with invaluable experience in dealing with the powers along the North African coast. 
The negotiations would also deliver an excuse for Jefferson to visit London in the spring of 1786 and for Adams and Jefferson to go on a tour of English gardens. Adams, meanwhile, would travel back to the Netherlands before ending his tenure in London to negotiate more loans for the United States, which would keep the country afloat until the new government under the Constitution could be put in place. On a personal note, the time in London provided the Adamses with a son-in-law as their daughter, Nabby, fell in love with the Secretary of the U.S. Legation in London, Colonel William Smith. John and Abigail approved of the match, and the two were married on June 12, 1786. Nabby would then give birth to their first child, William Steuben Smith, on April 2, 1787. Thus, it would be an even larger Adams clan that would return back to the U.S. in 1788. By the time of their departure from London, rumors were already coming across the pond that Adams would be named as vice president. However, Adams had started to make alternate plans. The Adamses had learned in 1787 that a large house, quote, on 83 acres and lying about a mile north of the cramped little salt box John had first occupied at the time of his marriage in 1764, had come up for sale, and they decided to make it their new home. They would give it various names over the years, but today it is best known as Peacefield. Adams had ridden that year to an associate in Massachusetts that upon his return from Europe, quote, My view is to lay fast hold of the town of Braintree and embrace it with both my arms and all my might, there to live, there to die, there to lay my bones, and there to plant one of my sons in the profession of the law and the practice of agriculture like his father. As those of you who listen to the Washington series know, that was not to be. Adams had requested and was granted a recall from his posting in London and, upon his return to Massachusetts, was soon after named as the nation's first vice president. The next eight years would prove frustrating for Adams, as, from the very beginning of his assuming the role, the man who had been an ardent patriot during the Revolution was branded as a monarchist, beginning with his advocacy for the lofty title of, quote, His Highness, the President of the United States of America and Protector of the Rights of the Same for incoming President George Washington. He was ridiculed by congressmen behind his back who dubbed him, quote, his rotundity and mocked in private writings such as the following, quote, I'll tell in a trice. Tis old daddy vice, who carries a pride and ass load, who turns up his nose wherever he goes, with vanity swelled like a toad. Worse, he would be for the most part shut out of the deliberations and decision-making of the executive branch. Besides engaging in social circles, he and Abigail were for the most part relegated to the sidelines as the political climate soured year by year. They found themselves at odds with old friends, including James Warren, with whom Adams had been so close during the Revolution, but who had become an anti-federalist during the debate over the Constitution. Abigail, in particular, would take criticism of her husband by people who they had thought of as friends quite hard. And, in the case of the Warrens, Abigail would, in time, simply cut James's wife, Mercy Otis Warren, previously her close friend and frequent correspondent, out of her life. At first, Abigail joined John at the seat of government, first in New York, then in Philadelphia. But after two years away from home, they ultimately decided that they would never again spend the entire year in Philadelphia. And indeed, due to ill health, the financial strain of having them both there, and possibly also the increasing political rancor, Abigail would ultimately spend more and more time at their home Peacefield, rather than joining John as he made his way to attend to official business in the capital. Meanwhile, changes were afoot at home. In 1792, part of the town of Braintree, the north precinct in which the Adamses lived, broke away from the town and was renamed Quincy after Abigail's grandfather. Thus, as I refer to Quincy as their hometown from here on out, you don't have to rewind to find out where you missed that they had moved again. Same house and same location, just new town created. During their many years away from home, the Adamses had relied on Mary Cranch, Abigail's sister and the wife of John's friend Richard Cranch, and her other sister, Elizabeth Powell, for everything from ensuring that their house was aired out and ready when they finally returned home to Quincy, to attending their son Thomas's graduation from Harvard when his parents were unable to be there. Meanwhile, their children were all growing up 
and establishing their own lives. Nabby had moved with her husband, William Smith, and their son to New York after their return to the U.S., and the couple had two more children, both boys, in November 1778 and August 1790. Despite their growing family and the on-paper important role that Nabby's father held, life for the Smiths was on rather shaky ground, as William had not been able to find a career into which he could settle and make a sufficient income to support his family. Even when he managed to get a government post, it did not pay well enough, and they had to rely on William's mother for financial support. At the end of 1790, William decided to leave Nabby and the children and travel, quote, to England to collect some debts owed to his family. Nabby's final child, a daughter, was born in early February 1795 after William's return, but their marriage and life remained precarious at best. We'll talk more about John Quincy's early days in his pre-presidency episodes, but the main point to note about his life at the time is that he had been named by Washington as U.S. Minister to the Netherlands, the post that his father had previously held, and would thus be in Europe when his father was elected president and assumed office. Also to note is that he had taken his brother Thomas with him to Europe as his secretary. Charles, meanwhile, had established himself in a successful law practice in New York, and in August 1795, married Sally Smith, Nabby's sister-in-law. This is where the Adamses found themselves when the patriarch, John Adams, prepared to assume the presidency of the United States in March 1797. And this is where we will leave them all until next time. I hope you'll join me in three weeks' time for an episode I'd like to call The New Sheriff in Town. Until then, please feel free to send any questions or comments you may have via email, Facebook, or Twitter. Source notes and past episodes can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And you can subscribe and listen to any episodes you've missed on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Podchaser, or pretty much anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, dear friends, take care. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.